Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I am Tane Kell. You know, in every episode, we ask listeners to suggest podcast topics, and we have been very fortunate, Tane, to have received some great topics, those being suggested over the years. We've had some we've been able to use and some that we're currently working on. Yeah, thank goodness for those suggestions, too, because we're not that creative. But today's topic was suggested by Judge Quinn Casper from my stomping grounds, Cobb County. So shout out, Judge Casper. So today we are going to discuss the topic of bonds and bond conditions. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with James Bond. Bond. James Bond. <laughs> Shake, shaken, not stirred. You do that pretty good. Thanks, I got man. Say. I got like that. Uh, yeah, the topic of bonds and uh, bond conditions frequently get attention from media outlets and other groups who have an interest in court proceedings and who completely misunderstand what a bond is or how it comes about. So without any further ado... Let's get to it. Bond, James Bond. Anyway, go ahead. As judges and lawyers, we know certain things that the average citizen doesn't know, Tane. Yes, we do. We take it for granted that they all know and understand some of the jargon that we use in the criminal justice system. There's really nowhere else in the law that there are more acronyms and yeah. shortcuts and and inside baseball phrases yeah. than in criminal law. Perhaps in the military. That's the uh, only maybe. place I've ever yeah. seen that. But, you know, assumptions that we have lead to miscommunications. And uh, we're not about that life here on the Good Judgment Podcast. You, you have never sound whiter than when you said, we're not about that life. We're not about that life here. Right. So, for example, I have been asked about a dozen times about the difference between bond and bail. Have you been asked that like at a yeah, thing oh, yeah. with non-lawyers? Yeah, well, around the dinner table. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So from our perspective, there really isn't any difference. No, if you were being technical, I think you could probably say that bond orders set the conditions of being released from pretrial confinement, whereas bail represents the money or other collateral that is being posted. Maybe I, you know, if you're really trying to find a difference, maybe you could say bail is the money or the thing right. being posted. Well, some people on the Google say that bail is the money that a defendant must post to be released from pretrial confinement, but bond is the act of posting real property or other collateral to secure the release. I don't know if the Google knows what it's talking about or not on that way, but those phrases essentially get used interchangeably. I hear people talk about posting bond for somebody, and then they'll almost the same amount of time they'll talk about putting somebody's bail up or bailing them out of jail. I don't think there's a meaningful difference between the terms. And for the purposes of this episode, Tane, there's just not. We're going to use hey, them interchangeably. Hey, bail me out here, Wade. Uh, there's another <laughs> misconception that bears discussion before moving forward. What's the actual purpose of bail? Well, the actual purpose of bail is to assure the defendant will appear for trial. Contrary to what some people mistakenly believe, bail is not intended to punish anybody who has been charged with a crime, even if it is a heinous crime. Yeah, because, you know, we've got that silly innocent until proven guilty thought in our Constitution there. So you don't 
punish people just because they got charged. Yeah, right? that perception is just wrong. And I and I think that there are people who criticize judges. I can't believe you you could have increased their bail. I mean, they they're going to get out without any problem. Did they show up for trial? Yeah. That's the point of the exercise. Yeah, but but that is a common misconception. So. The purpose of pretrial bond is to prevent punishment before a conviction and to secure the appearance of the person in court for trial. I mean, let's think about it. The alternative to that would be, if we didn't have bond, that they would have to stay in jail until a court date could be set. Like they did on Andy Griffith? Yeah, exactly, where you just held Otis in jail until he could be tried on his... Or until he sobered up. Yeah, and then he'll just let himself out. Then he'll let himself out. Which would be cool. That would be cool. Hey, look, I feel like I feel like I've learned my lesson. I'm just gonna let myself out now. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You go ahead. Yeah. Um, but if you don't believe that is the purpose of bond, understand that in our outline, which can be found where Tane? Goodjudgepod.com. You can find the case law that reaffirms that that is, in fact, the purpose of bail is to assure a- appearance at trial. It would be both irresponsible and foolish, Tane to tell people that the seriousness of the crime we're talking about has no impact on our decisions on bail. That would be ridiculous. It, of course it does. Why are you calling me out on that? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to get you to reaffirm that that would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. Because be, I consider that. Would be that. ridiculous. <laughs> because I consider that. That would be ludicrous. <laughs> in fact, we will discuss, as we will discuss in a moment, Georgia law actually requires different procedures based solely on the seriousness of the offense. So if we're all being candid with one another, a person charged with murder may have fewer incentives to hang around town while his case is being prepared for trial than someone who is charged with shoplifting. I'm not going to stick around and see how this comes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, the, but the same could be said for a defendant who's charged with relatively less serious felony who, because of their proven track record, knows that if they're convicted this time, they're likely to face a longer prison sentence. That defendant might be interested in pursuing some out-of-town travel opportunities, Tane. Yes, and some name change options. <laughs> but the point that we want to make here is that the purpose of bond is to ensure that the defendant will appear for trial. And quite frankly, that's its only purpose. Exactly. And to quote a case, when fixing the amount of bail, the judge is to consider chiefly the probability that the accused, if freed, will appear at trial. Other factors to be considered include the accused's ability to pay, the seriousness of the offense, and the accused's character and reputation. So, Tane, let's set the stage, especially for our non-lawyer members and or listeners and make sure that they understand kind of what we're dealing with here. A defendant gets arrested right. and has been charged with a crime either before or after that arrest. They get an arrest warrant issued and the judge has has signed that warrant. Right. Now, under Georgia law, arrest warrants can be issued by superior court judges or even probate court judges sometimes, but they are traditionally issued by who, Tane? Magistrate court judges. So let's not get into the details about when the other judges might issue a warrant because that's going to get us off track right. because we're trying to talk about bonds. But just understand that that could be one of those other judges. Yeah. And a part of that process, Tane, of getting the, securing that arrest warrant, the issuing judge very well could consider the issue of bond. That's right. And, and there, let's take a quick detour. There are actually some crimes that are only bailable before a superior court judge. And you'll understand why when you hear the, the crimes. Uh, so you the, just want to alternate? Yeah. So the first one is treason. (laughs) I had a lot of those. Yeah. Murder. Rape. Aggravated sodomy. Armed robbery. Home invasion in the first degree. 
aircraft hijacking and hijacking a motor vehicle in the first degree. Aggravated child molestation. Aggravated sexual battery. Manufacturing, distributing, delivering, dispensing, administering, or selling a controlled substance under Schedule 1 or 2. Violating Code Section 16-13-31, which is the Trafficking in Illegal Drugs Statute. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Hey, way to go, Clarence. Good job. Kidnapping, arson, aggravated assault, or burglary in any degree if the person at the time of that kidnapping, arson, aggravated assault, or burglary in any degree had previously been convicted of, was on probation or parole with respect to, or was on bail for any of those same offenses or any of the offenses listed that we've listed so far. Aggravated stalking. Human trafficking. And criminal street gang-related crimes. For those crimes, a magistrate judge cannot set bond. Only a superior court judge can set those bonds. Unless the magistrate court judge is sitting as a superior court well, judge. Well, we, we got some re- details about that in your, in your, in your handy-dandy outline yes, coming we do. up. So some people, Tane, refer to those as the seven deadly sins, and that's 14 of them. Yeah. So it's really not seven at <laughs> the all. The two times seven deadly sins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all other criminal offenses uh, can have bonds set by a court of inquiry, such as a magistrate court or anything like that. Yeah, and, and there's no true bond schedule established throughout the state. The amount of bond and the conditions of bond are generally left to the discretion of the judge considering that bond, and quite frankly, Setting a bond schedule might have some problems associated with it, too. Absolutely. Having just said that those 14 offenses must have bonds set by a Superior Court judge, a Superior Court judge has the authority to delegate that authority to a magistrate or some other court of inquiry. But, Tane, you were talking about this, so there is one limitation to the exception to the rule. That's exactly right. So let me say we got a rule. And then we got an exception, and then then we have a limitation. uh, That's right. And the limitation is this. Authority cannot be delegated to a court of inquiry to set bond where the maximum penalty is death or life in prison. So your your major offense is like murder. Yeah. Yeah. Any delegation under the statute can only be for one year, Tane. You can renew them annually if you wanted to, but you've got to do it on a year-by-year basis, and that delegation can't be permanent. Right. Uh, This... This point is a definite automatic and mandatory provision. Um, And it will be on the test that we'll send out to everybody at the conclusion of this episode. That's right. We know who you listeners are. We're sending you a test. So tell them the, the, the one thing that might be a rule that we can rely on not to have an exception. Listen, listen carefully folks. And I'm going to pause for emphasis. All people charged with a misdemeanor are entitled to bond. The judge simply cannot refuse to set a bond on a misdemeanor. It doesn't matter if this case involves a person with prior convictions. All people charged with misdemeanors are entitled to bond. So in our running hypothetical, the defendant before the court is charged with a felony. All misdemeanors get a bond. And the judge is conducting the bond hearing. So they turn to OCGA 17-6-1. Every time a statue is cited, an angel gets his wings. And we are not going to read you that because... Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. But understand that basically it says that the court is authorized to release a person on bail if the court finds either, one, the person poses no significant risk of fleeing, two 
poses no significant risk of to committing crimes or to property in the community. Three, poses no significant risk of committing a felony pending trial. And then finally, four, poses no significant risk of intimidating witnesses or otherwise obstructing the administration of justice. Now, this is where we get to one of those things that Wade and I like to refer to as the feeble fester rule, <laughs> you know, where people like to throw around case names that you have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> one of those here is... Oh, uh, Tane, Tane witnessed that with me. Oh, yeah. Somebody in a... <laughs> was it an NJO? Yeah, I think it was an NJO. They said, what about the Ayala factors? Ayala factors. I'm like, the hell's a deal lot? I saw the look on Wade's face and I said, you know, Wade, it's the same as Feeble Fester. And I was like, but what does it mean? And he goes, oh, you mean the statute? Yeah. <laughs> so there is a case. And, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. Yeah, it's we're going to talk here. about it in a minute. But people will throw that out as the Ayala factors and uh, it's the same. Anyway, so go ahead. Wade. One day we'll have to tell the whole Feeble Fester story and we all will, of our yeah. other ridiculous stories. <laughs> so, so when a person is arrested, yeah. Tane, he has a right to have a bond set. If the case has not been heard by the grand jury within 90 days from the commencement of their confinement, all the citations are in the law, right. where the death penalty is being sought, the state can actually apply for one extension of 90 days max. But once the person has been in confinement for 90 days, that statute authorizes, mandates that the court set bond. Now, it doesn't mandate that the court set a, a low bond, bond or a particular bond, but it does require that a bond be set. Well, um, and, and I'm going to tell you, and this during is little, COVID, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was. Th th this is a little tip for you judges out there. Um, when I got put in that box by the prosecution where I had to issue a bond on a case that I otherwise absolutely would not have issued a bond, that was made very clear on the record. You mean who who put yeah, you in that yeah, box? Yeah, that I that I wouldn't who have issued that that would not have been a case in which I would have issued a bond other than the requirements of law that I had to. I agree. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Some people argue that defendants are entitled to bond as a matter of right, unless the state proves they should not be granted bond. Now we may be doing semantics here, Tane, right. but, but I think that, that there's a quote that, in this particular case, it simply says the defendant contends that he is not indicted for one of the offenses set forth in the first part of 1761. The bail provisions of the law don't apply to his case, and he is entitled to bond or bail as a matter of right. And literally, the court said he is wrong, period. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. Unless it's a three-sentence it's a three word sentence where they say he is wrong. That's the greatest <laughs> wrong, thing. Yeah. 
Uh, basically, as you read the rest of that quote, it says, yeah, yeah, misdemeanors are entitled to bond as a matter of right, but all other cases are on the statutory standard. That's right. So now, remember, <laughs> Tang, remember, remember, isn't that a song from Earth, Wind, and Fire? Do you remember? No, yeah, that ahead. song. Um, a court is authorized to release a person on bail if the court finds that the, pose, the person, quote, poses none of those four risks we've talked about. The defendant, now this is, maybe this is semantics and this may drive everybody crazy, but bear with me. The defendant has the burden of producing evidence that he does not pose those risks set forth in the statute. The state has the burden of persuasion to establish that the defendant is not entitled to pretrial release. Yeah, and and that only comes into play for one thing to me. Who goes first at the hearing on bond? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Tane, we have it as promised. Tell people about the Ayala factor. Yeah, so uh, Wade once had a, law- a lawyer argue something about Ayala factors, as we said, and uh, he, he was like, I, I, like everybody in the world knows Ayala, like Miranda or, or uh, you know, Batson or something. And so practice um, point for lawyers. We don't all use the same shorthand that, across the state. That's right. But but the case embarrassing judge, not awesome, not awesome. But, uh, but the case is important. In Ayala, the Supreme Court of Georgia established that the defendant has the burden of production because he or she is in the best position to produce evidence about the defendant's ties to the community, etc. However, the defendant meets that burden of production. It, 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 once he does, then the prosecution has the burden of persuasion to establish that the defendant is not entitled to pretrial release on bond. No, so, Tate, let me ask you this. This is something we didn't talk about. Does your brain, whenever you hear about burden of, of production, burden of persuasion, does your brain automatically say, what's the standard? What's the standard? Of course. So there is no evidentiary standard applicable to bond hearings. It doesn't say preponderance. It doesn't say clear and convincing. It doesn't say beyond reasonable doubt or any of the typical standards that we are all simply accustomed to sort of ask about and, and know what they mean. Yeah. We, we can't quantify them, especially if we're trying to tell it to a jury. But we, there are just no cases I, on that point. I know it when I see it. It's yeah. that kind of standard like the Supreme Court Pornography. Yeah, but, but there is an interesting uh, quote from a case that's cited in our, in our outline, which is, the granting or denial of bail will not be set aside unless there is a manifest and flagrant abuse of discretion, which basically indicates that the trial court has abundant discretion in, uh, in, in setting bond. And in fact, it's a pretty high appellate standard. I'm not sure that's one I've seen in, in really any other case. Yeah. I mean, manifest and flagrant abuse of discretion. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen that before. No. So let's talk about wait about conditional bonds. Now these again were really, really important during COVID when we, when yes. we had jails filling up, we couldn't try cases. We couldn't come to court and conditional bonds became even more relevant. Absolutely. Judges can establish conditions of bond that are rationally related to the crime charged. And whether you're calling that a conditional bond or not, that's up to you. Um, but, for example, if there is a um, battery, like a family violence battery or a stalking, no contact with the victims, that, that's lot, clearly logically related to the underlying crime. Exactly. And things like... Um, you know, ankle monitoring, uh, you know, leaving, letting people out of, uh, you know, out of jail, but staying on a, on a monitor to make sure they're not going places they're not supposed to go. And they are going places they are supposed to go. Tane, let's talk about this for a minute. Cause it's not in the outline, but 
you know, when we grant bond to somebody, we don't know squat about what they are doing or what they're about until there's a court date and they show up or they don't. Right. With electronic monitoring, it does give you a better sense and may it may encourage you to grant bond where you otherwise would not. True. Because you have some sense of, of what's going on with this particular defendant. That is true. And, and and a lot of times it would be suggested by the defendant's counsel as a way of assuring the court that if this person is let out, you have a, a higher level of scrutiny. The problem with electronic monitoring, from my perspective, is how expensive it is. Um, yeah. it, the prices seem to be coming down on us. It. No, it's you know, it's no knock on the companies that provide that service. It's a great service, but not everyone can afford it, and so it causes a disproportionate ability of some people to get out on bond with with a higher level of of monitoring. And I'll tell you, some circuits have worked through that they are going to use county dollars to pay for it if mm-hmm. they really think it's necessary. And, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the cases where that really might be helpful to consider. Just understand that there is a whole separate code section at one of these point one code sections that authorize the electronic uh, Uh, Yeah, the electronic use of conditional bond. Right. During COVID, again, we were setting bonds in cases we would not otherwise set because we had that capability. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has sort of uh, continued. Now, I want you to be aware of something that that I don't know that you know about. Okay. There is some new technology being employed by some courts that where they don't put, involve where they, where they put that chip in your neck that's is illegal that do yeah. you know that's actually in the statute that yeah. you can't put it under the skin it is anyway like like somebody would do that like you know Elon Matrix. musk has Matrix. suggested that was okay um there is some new technology being employed by courts that use electronic monitoring but they don't use the ankle monitors mm-hmm. they allow the defendant's own cell phone smartphone whatever to be monitored and it requires facial recognition on demand the mm-hmm. thing about this is it authorizes you as the judge to geofence somebody mm-hmm. or to when they go out of bounds it note it actively notifies you you know the phone's out of bounds you demand a facial recognition right now they don't give you a facial recognition now you can go find them mm-hmm. and you're going to be able to find their phone because you have this app downloaded on the phone that can't be um, taken away. It's I don't like, want, it's I, like my, my find my friends app. I can just go find all my friends out there who are on but electronic find my monitoring. Friends, they can opt out, right? right. You can opt out of this, but anyway, right. well, you it, can, if you throw your phone in the yeah. river, yeah, <laughs> then you don't have your phone. Anyway, the one thing we want you to understand is that this is not something we are advocating. Right. There, we have put some citations to some cases yeah, that, it's that, out that there. offer that, yeah. but but we're not we're not endorsing anybody. We don't want anybody to right. think we're trying to endorse. We just know of some stuff. You can go down the rabbit hole. We're just giving you a place to start. Absolutely. Um, when I allow for a conditional release, and I call it EM, electronic mm-hmm. monitoring, Again, with the acronyms, mm-hmm. um, when I when I authorize EM, I, the bond amount that I set that they actually have to post is usually very small, maybe even OR, mm-hmm. because I'm not really worried about the financial incentives to come. Mm-hmm. As and but I am kind of like you, aware that there's a significant cost to EM. So one of the things that I'm going to attach to this outline, and if I when I don't attach it, one of you will call me and remind me. I know, <laughs> right? Is our conditional bond form that we live that we use in the Columbia circuit that mm-hmm. I originally wrote is a part of the Augusta circuit. I'll make that an attachment. Yeah, that'll be really helpful. So 
folks, we've spent considerable time discussing the law that that revolves around bond. Um, let's discuss our respective experiences and what sorts of information helps us decide whether or not to grant bond. So, Tane, let me let me start with you. Yeah. Seriousness of the charge. Big factor, small factor, no factor. B- big factor. I mean, because because baked into that is an incentive for the defendant in some cases not to show up. Okay, so so the seriousness of the crime right at the outset says to me, you know, if your punishment's 20 years to life, you have an incentive right there to potentially not show up. And that's the factor we need to consider. And even if your record is just, you know, you're going to jail if this if this is going to be your fourth, fifth, sixth. Yeah, that that's that's exactly right. So. So for you, crim- criminal history. Criminal history is, is probably the one of the largest. Yeah, um, sure. I, I hate to sound too too old again when they say that the the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Yeah. Criminal history tells me a lot. Yeah. And it tells me it helps me make better decisions. We're currently working to make the criminal history report that gets produced more accurate, but but it, it really means a lot. What about well, you? And, well, and and I was going to say, going along with criminal history, to me too, previous failures to appear is huge. Yeah. You know, if you if you've got a history where you just didn't show up for a traffic offense for probation, yeah, whatever. for probation, that's that's a big a big issue. So when when somebody comes in and they have a bond mm-hmm. and there is a room full of people supporting that person mm-hmm. or nobody supporting that person, mm-hmm. how much did weight did you put on that when you were making these decisions? Um, I think it was a, a factor. I don't think it was way at the top for me because I, we have seen time and time again people with some of the best families and best family support in the world making really bad decisions and doing dumb things and, and, and running away. I'll tell you what was a factor for me in some cases, too, is if they had family who lived in other places, maybe other places in the United States or other places outside the United States that they might have a place to go to if I let them out on bond. How often did you do something with the um, passport as a condition of bond? Not very often because it was very difficult. I mean, who's going to keep it? And and how are we going to, you know, how are we going to be, are you going to make probation hang on to it? They're going to be your real friend for life about that. If Or, or the lawyer, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough condition. So, so no, I, I just didn't really play that. That game very much. What so, about what about something? What if what about if the person was headed to rehab? What if now, what if they said, Judge, if you if you release him on bond today, he's going to go directly into an inpatient program at X Y Z. So there are very few things that encourage conversion to religion or willingness to go to rehab like criminal charges. Isn't that the truth? And Hallelujah. I have always taken the, the position: you can go to rehab when you get out of prison. You know, feel free to go to rehab if you think that's still important for you. Mm-hmm. But you had 900 zillion opportunities to go to rehab before today. I'm, I'm glad that this is a crisis point. Now, I will tell you, and I'm being a little facetious, but I'm not being real facetious. Mm-hmm. If the if it appears to me the defendant wants to go to rehab and we're not doing the whole you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink thing. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. Mm-hmm. If the mama wants them to, or the daddy wants them to, or we, they've paid for this rehab facility, and you can tell this defendant's been sitting there for if the defendant's been there a minute so that he can get sober and mm-hmm. clean, mm-hmm. that helps my my determination too. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I, you know, I was I, I was probably more lenient than you were on that. I was always about, especially if the person had never been to rehab giving them an opportunity to either sink or swim in rehab. I mean, you know, it's 
Well, some of that probably goes back to your success in the drug court arena. It, it does. I mean, my experience is there. Um, but my feeling about that was, look, if, if the other factors are present that say that I could let them out on bond, if they are willing to go to an inpatient rehab in particular um, directly, as you said, out of jail after they've had a chance to sober up or get straight, um, I, I was willing to give them a chance we're going to pick them back up same as if they violate probation on some other, for some other reason, if they bounce out of rehab after two days, you know? So we talked about other things like medical conditions where the, where the, the defendant has a significant medical situation. I'm going to tell you a lot of pregnant women have gotten out of jail on bond in my jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, so that they weren't subject to all of the Are people on dialysis. Or, exactly. You know, there that are, kind of stuff. Yeah, major, you know, cancers and, yeah. and, and all those sorts of things. And how much do the facts of the case impact you? Um, the underlying case. In some situations where, you know, you've got really violent conduct toward a particular victim, you know, se- uh, you know sexual uh, cases, um, um, you know, aggravated assault among spouses and people like that, the facts made a difference Either whether I granted bond or certainly what the conditions of the bond would be. With what about the other way where, yes, it's a murder, but it appears to have been a mutual combat situation where where yeah. they are mitigating, not mitigating, but factors that don't look like this was a premeditated stalking murder. It oh, looked yeah. like a bar fight. Well, and, and that's just it. I mean, that's why earlier I said, you know, <laughs> you don't need to have a bond schedule that X crime gets X bond because the facts of the particular case in front of you and the particular defendant in front of you are what you're supposed to weigh. And, and he so, really should wait. I mean, and, well, it, that's it's not saying. just I mean, that's, uh, giving lip service to a statute. No, that's, that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it, that is what you really ought to be looking at. So this episode's run a little longer than we anticipated. So we're gonna we're gonna sort of wrap that up. Um, we'll leave appeal bonds and probation revocation bonds and all that for another day. Um, just understand that bond conditions cannot be modified. You can't add to them. You can't take. You can't add conditions that are more restrictive unless you give that defendant a hearing. Right. The mere fact that they got arrested, you have to have a hearing to see if they got arrested. That may sound like a stupid hearing, but you've got to have the hearing. You have to do process demands. If you're going to restrict this person any more than you already have, you have to have them give them a chance to be heard. Right. Yes. And and this episode ran long, but man, it was a good episode. I know I we it really was. killed it on this one. I mean, really good. So that's all for our episode dealing with bonds and bond conditions that we really killed. So don't forget, there are some offenses which require a superior court judge to set the bond. But bond is not a matter of right. The The defendant has the opportunity to establish that he or she is entitled to bond. Under the Ayala factors. <laughs> but the burden of persuasion always falls upon the prosecutor. And remember, there's no particular standard uh, of, of determination that you have to use in that. This outline's full of statutory and case citations. That outline can be found at goodjudgepod.com. And reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com with all of your podcast topic ideas. Before you turn the page, yeah, these things that we're doing at the end of podcasts, let's make sure everybody understands. I write them. Yes. You've never seen them. I never see them. So right. you don't know if they're funny, serious, right. whatever. They're never have. serious. So we're going to turn the page. They're like, they're like the endings to all the Marvel movies where if you watch the whole credits, then you get the little kicker at the end. So, all right, I'm turning the page, Wade. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell.
The very first MTV Video Music Awards ceremony was conducted in 1984. You all remember the nearly 14-minute long video from Michael Jackson's song Thriller, which was awesome. Vincent Price, all of the ghouls and goblins, you remember all of that. But the video for Thriller did not win Video of the Year that year. Do you know which video beat the Thriller video for the award? Now, I know you're thinking it must have been like Citizen Kane, or I mean, it might have just have been an epic, amazing video. It was the Cars, You Might Think I'm Crazy, which I'm just going to be honest with you, it is a terrible video. And that beat Thriller. And that beat Thriller. So you might think I'm crazy, Wade, but all I want is you. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.